So today I'm talking with Game Master, and I'm really looking forward into just delving into all of his past experiences, memories, sort of community projects. We have a lot of engineering stuff from the past, and I mean a ton, but in, regardless, it's just really interesting to be talking with somebody from all the way back when, Season 6, 2012, pretty much start defining moments of the game in Highlander. Uh, you want to talk about yourself for a little bit, introduce yourself? Yeah, hi there, folks. Um, name is Game Master. Um, I am a you know longtime engineer TF2 player. Uh, I started playing the game, geez, let's see, 2009. So you know, over 10 years ago. Um, in all of the time that I played, you know, I did you know all sorts of different things. I did everything from you know running uh, community servers to playing competitive. I did some level of like you know. Uh, basic you know game uh config and map development and game modes uh so I've, I've seen this game from all sorts of angles and uh you know i've made a lot of friends and learned a lot along the way and uh excited here to share some of my you know perspectives of the things that i've learned over the years okay let's see so how do you get started in team fortress 2 on a casual level yeah, so uh, it's a funny story. It goes way back. Um, you know, back in the early days of the internet, I was actually an admin for a really, really old uh, online forum community. It was a rather active one for its days. I'd say around 250,000 monthly active users. Um, but I was one of the admins there. And I actually had another uh, admin there that was a good friend of mine that he knew about this you know new game at the time it had just been out for a year or two uh team fortress 2 and he really wanted to show it to me so um i was looking at it and then i think that it went on like a halloween sale like the 2009 or 10 halloween sale when they just introduced harvest event uh for two dollars and fifty cents and uh that marked my my first day of tf2 um i just played it from a recommendation from a friend on an old um envision powered board and uh from there it just devolved into um just playing the game to playing with my friend he had this um online community uh because back in the days of tf2 in the early days is there wasn't really like the server browser or matchmaking like you had today the server browser was you know the the clunkier one that you you can find deeper into the game but community servers were all there was and you know there was actually quite a lot of them it's like you know today i know it's a lot more consolidated but you would see so many different communities that had their own. And the one that he um, he uh, played on quite regularly, uh, believe it or not, was actually the Overclocked Remixed uh, music community. They had their own TF2 server. Matter of fact, they had two of them. Uh, one was a crit server, one was a no crit server. Um, but uh, back in those days, the game as popular as it was, is there was a, such a large community that on a nightly basis... Um, you would see both servers fill. And, you know, I got to know a lot of the folks in those communities uh, during that time. And that was kind of really my kickstart into TF2 casually uh, was that community is, you know, the community was very welcoming for what they were. Um, and I, I really enjoyed the camaraderie in addition to getting to play the game. Um, and that's, that's really where I started. Hmm, okay. Okay. Pretty interesting to hear for sure. So what was the game like back then on a casual level? So back in a casual level, that's one's interesting too. So I think that one is like, to the perspective of how casual it was, was kind of more segmented to the community you played on. Um, you know, I think nowadays it's like we think of Valve Service as kind of like the status quo floor. 
But back then, is like there wasn't really like a status quo Valve server or community equivalent. Uh, people that played the game, they were you know typically fairly engaged in their own right. Um, but each community, I think that you know because you played in communities, you typically played against a lot of the same players, and you know you learned off each other's nuances. But also, it was it was more of a you know rivalry that was always going on. So. Uh, on the more regular communities, like, you know, back in the old days, like, you might have had some of those, like, mega servers, like, you know, I think it was, like, Night Team and Lotus Clan, if, I don't know. If yeah, the around. classics. I think the they classic. are, but, like, I think they're kind of, like, memed upon, or, like, they've been ruined by questionable admanship these days. I see. Yeah, but back in those days, is like, you know, Lotus Clan is, like, you'd load up the server browser, and a third of them were Lotus Clan, because they'd have 30-plus servers. Uh, for whatever region you were in. And on those, it's like it was a little more in and out. Like you didn't necessarily always know the people as much. Um, but like on the small server, like where I played, is people were a lot more competitive. Um, you know, fun, funny story is later on, as I got into the competitive scene, is you would find a lot of people, like they started in various pub um, communities that they participated on. And usually there was like one or two people from that community would find their way into competitive and into the upper divisions. It's like they kind of, you know, in a loose sense represented that community back in the days where, you know, clan tags were still a part of your name. Um, and usually you'd only see one or two of them. Uh, but what's funny is looking back at the history of the Overclocked Remix TF2 server set is we actually had a lot of players that ended up getting into competitive and they ended up placing fairly high relative to those other communities. I think we ended up having, I think, four or five people that made their way into mid to high gold. And there was a couple of players that they, they weren't necessarily uh, competitive players, but they were renowned for their, um, their class play. Uh, for example, if I don't know if this name means anything to you, the, the spy player Paranoid Drone was actually a regular contender of the OCRTF2 community. Uh, not familiar with them, no. Uh, do you have a profile for them? Uh, yeah, let me see if I can... I'll get that one to you after right. after this call. Sure. Yeah, I'll see if I can get that over to you. But yeah, no, it's uh, certainly a lot of um, a lot of fun. Um, as, it, as it so happens, that community... Um, I mean, that was over a decade ago. Um, and, you know, uh, back in those days is still the days where all of us were angsty teenagers. You know, we had folks all over from the the 16 to 18 and 20 range and um i do still keep in touch with them we're a little bit more of a reformed community than what we once were because i think a lot of folks they you know a lot of them went off to college and we kind of lost you know track of one another over time and you know the the game in itself also kind of dwindled in interest because back then it's like we didn't have discord those weren't common things it's like there was the ocr uh forum but not a lot of the tf2 players were actually it was a mix of some OCR members, but not all of them. So the community wasn't a good focal point. The forum wasn't a good focal point. Is like our median of exchange. The it wasn't a Discord or anything like that at the time. It was actually the server itself. Uh, that's where you know the the, the town square was. So um, you know after many years, I'd say five or six, as the as the sister uh, the server was eventually taken down due to lack of interest. I uh, lost touch with a number of those folks. Um, but actually, just only a few years ago. Um, I actually founded a new community, and I reached out to many of those members uh, here, you know, using Discord as a median, and uh, we still actually keep in touch. You know, I, I think it's one thing that I've really appreciated as a takeaway from my my days at TF2 is, like, uh, I, I really did make some lifelong friends out of that. Um, and, you know, some of them have had influences beyond just being friends. You know, one of them actually ended up helping me jumpstart my uh, real-life career. 
um, and helped me, you know, get set up, you know, moving across the country. And, you know, I've made a lot of really good companionship and relationships um, through that time. And I still keep in touch with a subset of them today through the kind of, you know, founded Discord community. Uh, we do still do TF2 once a month, uh, but we've kind of, you know, as we're a lot older, we have less time to play than we used to. We tend to do more limited or less engaging activities, you know, silly stuff like Jackbox or other stuff, but just to, to keep in touch and keep engagement with one another. Right, right. So that's like definitely something you look fondly back on. Yeah, definitely some good yeah. times. Absolutely. Really like life-defining even, right? Like them helping you get a job? Absolutely. Yes. Mm. No, it's like, you know, it's funny because my, my history of, you know, growing up is I grew up in a tiny little town in the Midwest and uh, there wasn't really a lot of opportunity where I was growing up and um, there wasn't a lot to do. It was kind of like a smaller rural farm town. It's like, you know, most of the kids there their pastime was by 14 years old, most more, you know, um, I'm not, not exaggerating, they were alcoholics. Um, and uh, it wasn't exactly, you know, the type of lifestyle I wanted to pursue. So being the introvert that didn't really fit into the community, I just played a lot of online games. And, you know, my parents always told me, they can't play games all your life. You're not going to, you know, it's not going to help you find a career. You're not going to do anything with your life. And lo and behold, one of my gaming friends ended up landing me my, my career. So, um, you know, Kind of a little silly aside there. Hmm. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, what's the community that you? Sorry, I think you you cut off a little bit there. Uh, so, what was the community you founded? Can you uh, tell me more about that? Yeah. So the the community name is actually called Victory Pit. Um, a, it's a a nod to the original OCRTF2 community. Um, in that every time we'd ever play like a payload map or anything, where there was always the explosion at the end, everyone would always um they would jump into the pit post-cap and call it the victory pit. They would shout it through the mic. And when we were talking about uh, rebranding the community towards the end of the life of the original community, we were talking about what do we want to name this thing? And then the round had ended and someone just shouted, you know, completely non-secular to the conversation. They just shouted victory pit as loud as they could. And we got a good laugh out of it and then it stuck. And that's how we ended up with, with the name that we did. So um, it's an aggregate of a lot of the original members of the server back from nearly a decade ago. But uh, we also make efforts to try and find, like, you know, how to engage, you know, new folks as well. Um, people that have, like, a historical interest in the game or some of the activities or things that I've done. Like, I've worked on, like, various things like, you know, alternative game mods uh, for TF2, things like that. Um, you know, it's a small little modest community, but it's, uh, you know, it's of a, a very tight sect of people that I have a lot of history and a lot of, you know, pride in. Right, for sure. And uh, how has that been going recently? Uh, quite well. Um, we had a bit of a, a lull uh, early on, you know, post the uh, end of the TF2 server in itself. Um, you know, I think people were kind of burned out as well as people just having um, gone off to college and starting their careers and not really having time for these types of things. But I think as people kind of like, you know, graduated college and settled into their, um, you know, their, their careers that, you know, they are finding a little bit spare time again, and uh, they're coming back to old habits and getting to see some old faces. So I'm, I'm very happy to have been able to provide a, um, provide a space for people to congregate once again that, you know, remember each other from way back in the day, because like I said, the server itself was the town square and in absence of the server, uh, there's a new kind of uh, a new kind of town square that needs to be more accessible. That's not necessarily just the one game, right? Uh, things like that. So, what would you describe the town square as of sorts in the present day? Uh, just people, um, 
sharing, you know, what it is they're doing. It's like some people like they're they take it a little easier now. It's like playing what games they're playing, maybe like, you know, things going on in right, their right. life at a high level. Like, you know, some of our uh, te- angsty teenagers from back in the day, they're parents now. And, you know, they share sometimes experience just like, you know, with oh, the, wow. the games that they share with their little ones or, you know, what they're doing in their career, <laughs> things like that. I gotta imagine it must feel like wonderful to just see everybody you knew grow from back then. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely Be there you know, for it. Absolutely. No, I, yeah. I certainly do appreciate that and getting that opportunity. To, it, just the, the longevity of the connect the, the connection to those people right. to know how it was a decade ago and that we we still talk to one another uh, today and <laughs> share our, our growth and life experiences right. with each other. And I feel like that's totally something that you can look back on and be like, oh, yeah, I was there for that. You know, maybe I helped with that. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Uh, do you think maybe that's something that's lacked in the modern day of online activities? Like, do you think you don't really see as much of that? I do, actually. And I think that I would say that that has to do with kind of a cultural shift in general, because I would say that, you know, back in even 10, 12 years ago is the Internet was still a lot more Wild West than it is today. There wasn't as much centralization. It's like we didn't have, you know, things like Discord that were readily accessible in these easily accessible communities. Um, Everyone had their own little like corner of the Internet. That was hosted on these like you know forums like you know overclocked remix there wasn't like crazy hosting and there wasn't um you know gaming and computers weren't as like industrialized as they are today is like nowadays it's like everyone's trying to always be delivering content there's always the next big thing there's always the push to have user engagement even if that engagement is degraded so i find that sometimes maybe people they aren't really the way that they're able to engage with each other isn't as, you know, bonding as it used to be because it isn't the same group of people because there's just so much push to always do something else or be engaged or right. do this and do that. Like, think matchmaking in Overwatch is a great example of, like, you know, what what made Overwatch try... It tried to be that TF2 successor and why did it fundamentally, I think, like, fail to be the, the proper successor was right. that, like, TF2 is, like, the way that the game was played, the way that you participated with the server browser and finding your community. It was a lot different than, like, Overwatch, where you're just thrown in with random people, and then it's kind of a short game. You don't really get to... Everything's taken too seriously. Where even TF2 back in the day was a game where it was still silly, and it wasn't necessarily having to be serious all the time. Uh, But there wasn't things like, you know, rank and things like that. It's just, like, if you wanted to go play competitive... You went to a competitive community-sponsored league, but if you just joined a server, like you could have, you had fun. It's like, right. like a, a town square, so to speak. And that sort of like the lack of that sort of just like scares people away, right? Like it hurts the development of just like those meaningful connections because it's just constant drifting. It's just another right. name. Exactly. It's kind of drifting or kind of like a sandbox environment. It's kind of like a slightly more glorified, say, like Minecraft experience, where you know I think that nowadays is that. Um, a lot of why it's done the way it is today is it's just trying to drive user engagement. They want to get those monthly active user numbers up. Um, you know, that, that's all they care about. They, it's not about selling the game. It's about keeping engagement and keeping people doing, like, you know, um, transactions or following their favorite streamers and, like, the merchandising. Uh, you know, TF2 and how Valve, I mean, how Valve runs TF2 today is, like, they never really did that i mean they did like their tf2 economy but even that was kind of like a more experimental sandbox and when i started the game like the man economy wasn't even a thing there wasn't even trading back when i when i started um you know but valve did it kind of as an experiment and it wasn't kind of this formula like it is today with most games Hmm, i see i see yeah it was just a lot more like hands-on per se definitely there's a lot more hands-on and i think the other aspect too is um in addition to be hands-on is that the community was empowered is 
um, you can make your own content. You know, you had the developer tools. So we always had like somebody would make a map and we get to play the person's map and they get to be on there with us. We get to, you know, interact with the map maker. So that also was kind of another type of a bonding experience. People could enjoy, like they could bring in the things that they liked. They could be contributors and you got to really inter and interact with these people at a more personable level in your own communities, which is something that, like, you know, to this day, I still don't think Overwatch has anything like, there's no map maker. Like I had like the custom script modes or whatever, but still the matchmaking the lobbies and everything it doesn't really um it doesn't really grow that same type of sense of community that we had back then right right okay so um how did you initially get into competitive so this is a really funny story um so my original intention was never ever to actually participate in competitive and it's the reasoning behind it was kind of that I never really believed that, for one, I was kind of cut out for competitive, but for two, that my mentality aligned with, you know, competitive play. As I always assumed competitive to be this really rigid, understand a meta, be the absolute best mechanically, and like there's just like no room for foul play or anything like that. And that's not how I really played the game, is always how I play the game, is I was kind of like, uh, I like to play more like a chaotic role, which is to say, like, I would do things unconventionally um, in the community server that I played on. And I would do like, you know, silly antics in order to kind of like uh, corner or trick people, um, you know, back in the days of before engineer had the unlocks to even like move buildings. I was still the type of person that would build like on the top of mid and fast lane or in the rafters of nucleus because nobody expected that, especially when you couldn't move buildings or you didn't have the wrangler to explosive jump is like. It was a trickster play. Um, but that, to me, it felt like that fundamentally misaligned with competitive play. And the way that it ended up happening, that I ended up actually getting on a competitive team in the first place, is I actually knew the Steam-powered user forum moderator, Janobi. And Janobi had a good friend, uh, a medic main, and a steel UGC team back in, like, Season 6. Yeah, Season 6 turns of and uh, Rampagement terms of enranch pagement actually that was a different team that huh, team okay. was um, one that i ended up mentoring i believe some seasons later uh but season six would have been the wild party and um what had happened is they were a steel team back when the days where the league was actually so big is like there was actually there used to be i think it was platinum silver there was no gold and there was steel red and steel blue and then there was an iron red and iron blue there were just so <laughs> many teams so like they had to actually i think it was like 64 steel teams so they they split them into a red and blue division but oh. uh despite having such a high amount of players and teams um they were struggling to find an engineer player midway through the season their engineer had left the team and they could not find a replacement and what ended up happening is Janobi, who knew this, he had come across me and had known that I was an enthusiastic engineer player doing kind of like the silly unorthodox things that I like to do. But he saw that I had um, a predisposition to enjoy the class. That was something that was not common in the league at the time. So despite the fact that there were so many players, uh, nobody wanted to play engineer for the team, especially mid-season. Everyone had already committed to their team. Um, he suggested that I play for the team. And I was reluctant at first, because uh, I still thought competitive wasn't for me, that I didn't align with what competitive meant. Uh, but I, I, I gave, you know, I had 
like Jenobi as a friend, so I, you know, to do him a favor for his friend, um, I spoke with the team leader, and we discussed it, and they were, you know, they were very desperate for a player. Um, they knew loosely that, like, I explained to them, like, I'm a little bit unorthodox, and they were, I think basically they were looking for more or less a warm body. Um, and they said, you know, ride out the season with us, and, you know, if it's not for you, like, as a favor, go ride out the season, and then, like, we'll find someone next season. And, um, you know, it would, it would be a huge favor for us. And I took him up on it. Um, and, you know, my, my only contingency was I want to play engineer the way that I want to play engineer. Um, and I tried, you know, like I, I tried very in the very early stages just to be like a normal competitive player in that, like, you know, I watched what the other engineers kind of did, which there wasn't really a lot of, uh, it was a lot of chaos. They, they, nobody really had a, nobody really liked to play engineer at that time. There wasn't like a community or camaraderie of engineer players. It was kind of, uh, all engineer players were the, someone who didn't make the cut for another role in the team. You know, the, the guy wanted scout, and his, he wasn't. He didn't make the tryout, but he was a friend of the team leader, so he got the NG spot instead. It was kind of this, you know, leftover spot. Um, so there wasn't a lot of reference for me to go off of, and you know, I tried to play it fairly standard um, and maybe take a little bit of feedback from the team. But you know, candidly, is not a lot of people understood how engineer what his potential was. Right. So when I played it more typically the first few games, it's just it wasn't doing anything for me. So I decided that I, you know, I liked the way that I played Engineer with a little of my own or- unorthodox play. It worked well for being community servers. So for the hell of it, I decided let's go ahead and give it a try. Like I want to, I want to play play it my way. And I played through the season, and I did some, you know, I definitely did some things that were absolutely unheard of for the time. Is back in the days before engineers had Wranglers, where they had um, movable buildings. Is like. Um, you saw engineers play either very passive or predictably, but like I was the type of person is like you would find a game where the engineer had managed to build a leveled sentry on like the enemy's China on Viaduct. It's just like it was why was that person there? How did they get there? Um, and that was kind of the early stages of it. Um, but um those are the types of things that I would do early on. Um, and, you know, I, and, and I, I had a strategy about it. It wasn't just something I did unconditionally and of no interest to in my team is like, I made sure my team was accommodated with their teleporters and the dispensers. And I know that if I did the strategy over and over, that eventually people would catch on, it would become ineffective. So it was something I would rotate in and out, but it was fun. I enjoyed it. Um, and the team, we did moderately well. I think we typically I think every season I played with that team, we ended up being like top five. Um, and you know, this was back when the rosters were 32 for a division. So we were doing pretty well for ourselves. Yeah. Um, but, um, at the end of that season, um, I talked to, um, you know, the end of the season, the season went and then the next season started up just a few weeks later. And, you know, I got a message from the, the medic maiden who was the, the team lead. And he asked me, he's like, would you like to come back? Would you like to play with us again? It's like, we, we really enjoyed having you and I, you know, Contrary to my original hesitance to do competitive, I, I realized I actually really liked playing with that team. It, you know, despite winning or losing, uh, when the team lost, people were still you know good to one another. People did, it, there wasn't a realm of toxicity. Uh, when we won, everyone you know uh, we enjoyed and we celebrated the victory together. But there was just a high level, a sense of camaraderie that I appreciated. That I felt similar to like the the the, the pub community that I played on. Um, that 
we just liked one another. It's kind of like a, a loose sense of family in a sense. And is like the the paradigm of how we behave back then is like nothing of what I saw today. Is like you know even in the later times of playing Highlander, is like the biggest thing with Highlander is like getting people to show up. Is like you know I yeah, I remember towards the end or the the end times of Highlander when I played in like you know season seventeen eighteen even like as far back as like sixteen, um, is Games always started half an hour early. If you are late, if they started half an hour late, you were on time because nobody showed up on time. You always had one or two ringers. And it's like, why? Like some of these people are like, why are they even a starter? They're never here. They played less than their subs. Uh, But that wasn't my team. Uh, My team, everyone, you gave them a time of when scrims were or when a match was. Everyone was there 15 minutes early, Hmm. all night, without exception. When did teams used to scrim back then? Like, uh, was it just still, like, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, 8.30, 9.30 Eastern Standard? Or was there more diversity in terms of days back then? Like, what was the sort of commitment? Yeah, so... I believe it was mostly the same. There's a little bit more flexibility. Um, you would have teams that some would try to break it up throughout the week because there were so many teams. Like, you had some teams that would do things on Wednesdays, some would do it, like, Thursdays. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, the Friday was not an uncommon one. Saturday, Sunday was a common one. It, it sometimes it also depended on how engaged the team wanted to be. Some teams are like, we just want to keep ourselves a little bit, you know, like well oiled. So like we're gonna do like match nights Mondays. So we're gonna do Mondays, Wednesdays, Saturdays. So like every couple of days we're we're participating. Some teams, if they really just they wanted to focus it all together and get a lot of rigor out of it, it was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then match on Monday. Um, but usually teams would at least pick one or two days and either they concentrated them or it was spread out throughout the week. But there was enough teams and enough opportunities is that you could find a scrim pretty well any any night of the week. Um, with exception is sixes scrims didn't really happen on Highlander nights and Highlander scrims didn't really happen on sixes nights. Those were about the only times is like um, UDC did. I They did have a sixes league, but it was really... Not a lot of people, I, I would say, as many participated in it. It was really right. more uh, ESEA. So ESEA was the big sixes league. Highlander was the de facto, um, U- or yeah, uh, UGC was the de facto Highlander league. So usually sixes ESEA match night was not a Highlander scrim night for UGC and vice versa. Hmm. It's, I'm glad to hear that uh, some of the Highlander culture is been consistent since then especially as you mentioned earlier though the 30 minutes to to, to start time yeah, yeah. <laughs> although these days it's more like 15 i think past is the commonly accepted interval but uh it's, glad to hear glad it's improved <laughs> marginally it only marginally. took it only took about you know a decade yeah <laughs> a uh, decade for half so maybe in another decade it'll be like 7.5 or zero you know there you go. I, that's what there we can look go. forward to. That's why we got to stay involved in the scene. So, um, yes, absolutely. Would you say that just not really having many existing resources uh, when you started out definitely like, kind of like helped define you as a player, helped kind of like drive you to have to f- perform better on your own due to a lack of those existing resources? Yeah. So I think that the first thing was, the, yeah, the first thing was that there was a lack of other resources, so I kind of had to explore to understand what the dynamic was that I wanted to, to bring to the table. Right. Uh, there wasn't a there wasn't a blueprint because there wasn't other players that played engineer. Basically, anyone who played engineer, they just took it as an opportunity to haphazardly throw down buildings and just, just shotgun because it was a you know a scatter gun to them. You know, they were just a slower scout. What about the top um, teams? 
it was basically the same even there wow. i mean they they would set up maybe like level threes in the common locations everyone kind of mimicked each other's level three spots that were common choke points not too much beyond just pub spots really um but they'd set it up and some engineers they'd let the gun go down by just completely neglecting it and just going off the shotgun some engineers they would hang in the general area uh shotgun was nearby and keep themselves you know nearby for their gun but there wasn't a lot of metagamer strategy to it. It was really just a, my, I'm a scout that has to erect buildings and keep buildings up, and then I get to go off and shotgun things and do what I actually wanted to do, which is shotgun things. There wasn't a sense of them communicating to their teams where things would be. There wasn't a sense of, you know, the team strategizing or playing around, like, the the sentry spots, like, people didn't really identify the weak points of their spot. They just like, oh, this is a choke spot. It looks good. It's not necessarily like, you know, they if they have to walk in through choke, then they, ha- they have to get an Uber for this. But it's like, what about all the flank routes? Like nobody took those things into consideration. So engineer didn't have a sense of community or target discussions that I really felt. So it led me to exploring the way that I wanted to play it. And basically I would review my own gameplay and my goal always was never to say, hey, like, player XYZ, I want to be like him someday up in this division above me. It was, how can I improve based on what I did from the game before? Or what strategies were effective? And I would, you know, theorize as like, why were they effective? It was important for me to understand that. And I think that it reinforced kind of my unorthodox play, because a lot of what I found is that if you set up a conventional nest or setup or whatever, especially one that's a commonly pub-used one that everyone else is doing, I mean, everyone has a lot of practice to figure it out. Like, just, they're going to tear it right down with their standard setup because your team will also counterplay around the same way. So with the team that I was on at the time, I had a lot of appreciation for them, and they were very, you know, um, accommodating to me, and we had a unique dynamic, is that the team would listen to what I wanted to do, and they wouldn't always execute the way that I wanted, but they had some conscientiousness of like, hey, I want to try this unique sentry spot or hey i want to try this strategy and um we would try things that were a little more unconventional for the time and um that dynamic is what kind of reinforced me playing the play style that i always did is because it was the effective one is people remembered the spots that i put up because teams would like this team would be like the top team in a league um or in a division they would get caught up on us even if we were we didn't have a dm match for them it's like they would lose pushes to like the weirdest sentry spots or they would have like the craziest things that would just like take out a flanker or something that would just lose them a push and i i i was denoted that that the psychology of like the impact that it had on those players and like the way that their meta strategies fell apart is what really helped me reinforce that i wanted to bring that dynamic to competitive is because i Part of me, I don't like the the core mentality of how a lot of competitive is played. Is oftentimes players focus on you know damage and speed. That's all they focus on, and you end up with a lot of these strategies that devolve into people just basically playing hit scans uh, and you know like the high mobility like demo and soldier, and that's where all the focus of the game is. It's like, what's the demo doing? What's the soldier doing? But it's like to me, is I don't like that that focus is only on there. And that there's this entire toolkit. Highlander is to play all nine classes. And there's this entire toolkit of other classes that have better, you know, other dynamics. And, you know, you think about spy being the psychology class, which is like, is that person a spy? Is the spy behind us? You know, they have invis watch. And it's, but it's like an engineer was just thought of this like lackluster utility. It's a dispenser and a sentry going that goes down. But it's like, for me, 
is that a well-positioned sentry has a lot of power dynamics. This is like, we're talking the days where when the Wrangler and the Rescue Ranger were, you know, even before the Rescue Ranger, but even with this introduction, there was a time where the Wrangler was crazy overpowered. Is it was before uh, it had nerfed repairability when the shield was up. So you basically had a six, 700 health gun that you could heal for 200 health per second, uh, you know, give or take with your wrench. And depending on the dynamics of things you could do, is you had a crazy powerful toolkit that nobody thought to take advantage of. And, you know, the way that I think about it is like, think of it this way. It's like, what's one of the biggest counters to a sentry? Uh, one of the biggest counters unconditionally is a spy, his snapper. Yep. Um, but the moment that you put a sentry on a high up ledge, especially using explosive jumping to get there, if you don't put a teleporter up there, you have literally negated one of the biggest counters to that thing. And now the enemy team has to concentrate an insane amount of damage on a well-maintained gun that's, you know, swapping between wrench and wrangler to keep that thing up. And then, like, you've changed the whole dynamic of a game where the entire enemy team is focusing on speed. You have stonewalled them. And um, it's a, and it, to play competitive is to be the best at the game using all the resources available to you. And I believe that that was something that should have been exercised more. To, like, in a truly competitive game, everyone should be doing this. Right. But conversely, people hated that because it slowed the game down and it made them have to focus on something that... Basically, by virtue of the meta game, people ignored because it wasn't fun. Nobody liked it. So, like, it was like almost like a gentleman's agreement to say, like, we're not going to explore these mechanics of the game. But hey, it's competitive, like it or not. We're here to win. And if I can stonewall and kill your momentum and give my team the opportunity to get their grounds or take advantage of a sentry getting a cheeky kill, then that gives my team the upper hand. So, I feel like I was kind of this anomaly that um you know I, I like gave a foundation to the concept of that the metagame is more than just speed and damage it's also you know like psychology and you know there's a there's an the the the, the counter of how do you combat speed is you just use stonewall tactics to slow the game down to give your team the opportunity to get a foothold so that it doesn't become a steamroll so um it was very controversial. A lot of people did not like it. Um, and, and go ahead. It, did that more philosophical approach to the game, like that sort of philosophy mentality, ever really catch on, or is that something that you saw just kind of die out? So, I kn it had, I would say, like an underdog community. So, as I continued playing in UGC over the years, I'd say probably emerging around season twelve to thirteen. You know, I started in season six. You started to see some level of emergence of people playing engineer and participating in like an engineering collective as a community of sorts. So like the same people that have opinions of like, how do I play soldier to its finest or sniper, like, you know, sniper positioning and sniper strategies. Like there started to be this emergence of people actually taking engineer as a class seriously and people considering themselves engineer mains rather than someone who didn't make the cut for another role. Hmm. And in that time, I had a couple of people that they would certainly reach out to me um, and they would discuss with me like that my play style, it had notoriety, not always good notoriety, but for the people that appreciated it, um, they would reach out to me and they would discuss with me kind of some of my engineer philosophies. And I would say that as engineers started to have this emergence of a community, I, I would say there was like probably like a 15 to 20 percent of the community 
kind of embraced the 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 theoreticals behind what I did. Perhaps not the exact exact play style that I had, but kind of some of the psychology of engineer. Uh, whereas the majority of it still was kind of a focus on more. I would say it was a split between just plain engineer conventionally. It's like okay. You gotta have your building set up. How can I optimize metal? Where are the metal spots? Where's this? Where's that? And then you had a smaller sect of engineers who were just like they believed engineer. The the true philosophy was run and gun. That's all you did. It's like you know the moment gunslinger was a thing, there were some engineers on defense. You know they didn't use level threes. It was gunslinger 100% of the time. They always had a shotgun, maybe a widowmaker, and they dropped a they dropped a tele, they dropped a dispenser, they dropped minis, and they went to town. So the engineering community was still trying to find its core philosophy um i would say it was more even i would say the most common one probably the bulk was that conventional engineering uh with the shotgun engineering being the close you know second and my kind of philosophy was being explored by a smaller section of the community it wasn't non-existent but it certainly wasn't prominent hmm. and was that was that an interesting dynamic when you started working on the uh, engineer bible like what's some of the lore behind that Right. So the lore behind the Engineer Bible was, I would say, kind of one of those engineers who was exploring engineering as a class. Um, no problem was his name. He was probably one of those engineers that had, you know, similarly he played in a time where I did, where there wasn't really this congregation of an engineering kind of community. And he wanted to write the Engineer Bible, which was kind of this um, aggregation of kind of like early influential engineers that it from his perspective that he believed uh you know had uh ambition for the class is that they weren't just the person that was playing it because they didn't they didn't get the class they wanted that they played the class because they actually enjoyed it they actually enjoyed what they were doing so uh he was the main author of the article but he actually came to me and had some discussions with me and I helped uh, with some of my attributions to the, the the engineering Bible, and I kind of focused on the concept of the psychology play of how you played engineer, and it was you know something that I I've touched on a couple of times, uh, especially later in like articles that I wrote as well. But that was like the very first time I think it was really like put down on paper, um, this concept of you know exploring your class. And not just exploring the mechanics, but the psychology of it, which is something I think previously was not as well exercised in the TF2 community um, for most classes. Like the right. only other class that maybe talked the psychology of their class was probably spy player. Nobody really thought about, you know, taking the concept of the psychology of what your class is doing and the, the, the social aspect of it and applying it to something that wasn't spy, especially not engineer who didn't really have even a non-psychological or mechanical community congregation behind it. Hmm. And it was really cool to just sort of like be a part of that, sort of help that sort of sense of class identity develop. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that part of me wanted to... That, that aversity to joining competitive because of this these pretenses that kept me against it, saying that like, no, um, I'm not cut out for competitive because I don't share this mentality. It For me, it was kind of the dawn of saying there is something here and kind of being anti-meta in itself is like a, a meta game. So like the meta of the meta, uh, being anti-meta is like, you know, sometimes a play that you make by the numbers, if you were to deduce it into numbers of like how much damage am I putting out, how much time have I stalled here or there, 
it's a subjective it's a it's a, it's objectively worse in that regard but the subjectivity of well what happens to a player that chokes on this play or this decision that i make and i make them misplay there's a subjectivity there that because you can presume a player's mentality if you subvert the mentality with your own sense of anti-meta play you have a more effective strategy and it becomes as the psychological game of kind of evaluating your opponent and seeing like how rigid they are and what their behaviors are and whether or not you can counterplay those those behaviors. Um, so part of the you know my attributions to the engineering bible is I really liked being able to you know share that and I think foster some level of growth in that mentality and making competitive more competitive because we saw that play. And what's funny is um, I got to enjoy a couple of engineers telling me some stories, um, some engineers that were very much inspired by that, and they made, you know, um, large contributions or notoriety in their own leagues. Um, are you familiar with the EU engineer Hammock, by chance? Uh, I've seen him around in the engineer dis- TF Discord, I want to say, or like Hammond or something. Yeah, Hammock. Uh, I believe he was in the engineer TF Discord. Yeah, uh, I believe wants- that name rings about. He- he once told me uh, some stories. He was inspired by some of the, the antics I had done on maps like Process. And he brought those to ETF2L, and he would do the same things in the ETF2L league. And he had his own sense of notoriety for being very much disliked for some of the strategies that he employed because they were those same just miserable stonewall strategies. Like, um, you know, the notorious um, Process 5CP on the, the, the kind of the, the perch on second. Um, he that was one of his favorite spots that he liked to use, and you know this is the pre-nerf days where the the rent or the the century didn't have fall off when wrangling. It still had crazy repairabilities. Like you could stonewall a game with that, and he was inspired by a lot of like my engineer bible philosophies, and it was it was great to see someone exercising that and you know enjoying it and um, refining the philosophy. Right. Uh, so what, what ended up coming up from the Engineer Bio project? Like, how long did it last for? What sort of legacy did it leave behind? Yeah, so the Engineer Bible, I believe that uh, No Problem spent, I believe, like three to six months actually fleshing out, um, fleshing out the Engineer Bible. And I remember, um, I remember it getting a lot of attention when it came out is like it was this article that he wrote and he wasn't really expecting like a lot of feedback or traction but like if i remember right like it just like it got so much attention and it had like tens of thousands of views and people were just ecstatic about it and i know like um you can look at it on the um i think on the steam community guides yep. today but this was written i believe before a time where the steam community guides were even accessible and um you know the steam community one itself has i believe close to six thousand views and 400 favorites but i mean it had even more attention in an era before that um Mm. but it i think it like to me the engineer bible guide marked in in my mind the mentality of when engineer begun began exploration the community began exploration of engineers having a um a, a collaborative environment where it became like you know like they had discussion in meta discussion about how you play this class rather than it just being a loose collective of people that were playing the class because it was the spot available to them. As people were engaged and they wanted to learn and understand how to 
be more effective in the game and explore the theories and strategies of playing engineer. Uh, it looks like they had more planned in the works, like um, an engineer Bible part two. Uh, did anything end up ever coming from that? Or like what happened to the project? So um, I was really more only of an attribution on the first one. So I wasn't as involved in the cores, especially of the, the second one. Um, I believe that um, No Problem just had um, other parts of you know life kind of take priority. And it was something that unfortunately just never saw fruition. Mm, um, okay. So I don't know a lot of the, the details of what we were, were hoping to touch on in a part two. It might have been in sometimes like a retrospective of um, the time between one and two. Uh, but uh, I, I did feel that like anything I wanted to express at the time was fairly comprehensive for the time. Uh, let's see. I'm not wearing my glasses right now because it hurts to have my headset on my ears while I have my glasses. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a bit hard to read. But it looks like some of the things they wanted to talk about were like the rescue ranger changes, MVM, loadout mm -hmm. mashups, uh, sentry gun placements. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of that is... My building value. That a lot of that is kind of uh, my my pretense between of one and two is like what has ha what has changed in the time right, right the engineer bible one was written in a time where the rescue ranger wasn't even a thing oh oh like literally the rescue ranger was the thing not even changed okay if i remember correctly like the beginnings of when it was being discussed i don't remember the rescue ranger being a thing maybe i'm getting my chronology a bit wrong but i certainly don't remember that being something i discussed or being a a common tool in my toolkit because uh, you know, I remember even when the Rescue Ranger came out, um, is the Rescue Ranger, um, uh, it took quite some time. Yeah. It, it took some time for the Rescue Ranger to even become adopted and accepted as a compelling strategy. A lot of people actually thought the Rescue Ranger was not a, a very good weapon for the longest time. Hmm. Um, and I was actually one of the, the earlier engineers to run it in competitive because, um, I, I believe in the philosophy, especially how broken it was. We're talking a weapon that at the time you could teleport it to a high location and you didn't have to hide a telly and teleport through with your gun. Uh, so you could set up much cheekier strategies far more quickly. But also, it healed your gun and didn't consume ammo. Or metal, rather. Mm. And that was a powerful tool that, you know, coupled especially with the Wrangler at the time, uh, was insane. And... A lot of people just saw it as an absence of a shotgun, and you know, oftentimes in, in teams following the the first team that I, I played with for those first five seasons, teams would actually get onto me for not running the shotgun because they believe so vehemently that running a sh not running the shotgun it was a, like the equivalent of throwing in effect, which wow. was not how I saw it at all. But it's like there really was a, a true value to this. Oh, how there the was, times have changed! Sorry, right? Yes, yes, no, absolutely. But uh, it was it was not well received, and and that and that goes back to kind of that adversity to I think people having a disdain for engineer being that class that slows down the game, and I think that still even with kind of the philosophies I brought to the table, a lot of people still perceive things like the sentry to be more of a disposable element that just inevitably goes down, whereas I saw it as this entity that if properly uh, cared for in a competitive environment that if your team plays around it appropriately, you position it correctly as that you can keep that thing up indefinitely is like the amount of healing capacity and, you know, team play to your vulnerabilities is like, you can stonewall the damn thing. And like, there were plenty of examples where that was true. And I had team support me. Um, and a lot of it really came down to the team support, like whether or not the team supported the engineer. Um, and, a lot of that, like, you could say that in the very early days, the teams that were more willing to play with their engineer were more 
uh, accepting of his loadout, and they might have been a little more accommodating to him running the Rescue Ranger, but quite often that wasn't the case. Hmm, okay. And um, did the groundwork you laid with the Engineer Bible, like, did it inspire sort of like the big names that you would see covered in something like a Quality 716's uh, article? 72521's article. Ugh. Yeah, so... Like a d- what's interesting, yeah. So what's interesting to me is I believe that one or two of the engineers that he spoke of did have some level of, um, you know, awareness of what I did. I think some may have considered a level of inspiration to consider their own dynamic of like, oh, engineer can be played in more than one way. I don't know if any of the ones in Equality's article were explicitly inspired to kind of emulate what it is that i did and um but to that point i feel like equality's article does a good job in highlighting all of the different play styles and the fundamentals that people popularized playing engineer and i certainly you know find that i i inspired a certain a particular type of dynamic that may have inspired other people to find their own dynamic but uh, i think that his his article does a good job at finding people that each had their own kind of um foundation that they brought to the larger engineering community and um you know either popularized or were just a good representative of that type of play style being executed well and how did it feel to be like this huge source of inspiration that gets covered in so much detail in his article um you know like i said it feels good kind of going back to those those fundamentals of like for someone that like getting into competitive was almost an accident is like, I never really meant to, I didn't think it was for me. And to have that, that team that inspired me to stay with them and support me and my unique play, it felt really good to be able to bring that to a broader community and inspire others to either explore their own dynamics or to try and put a new spin or bring into a new era, the anti-meta mentality that I brought in, which I also liked because I liked seeing the game being played to its fullest and not this perspective of people like the only people that get recognition and the only way you climb in this game is you know higher accuracy and moving faster better pogo jumps better meat shots with your scattergun is that you brought the the perspective of thoughts and not necessarily mechanics and play style came into the game and i like to see that that was being introduced and um, that people kind of saw what I did and that they were interested to hear what I did and understand the the building blocks of how I arrived and why right. I execute the way that I did and for them to exercise it themselves and continue on what it is that I, you know, was able to bring to the table myself even after I stopped playing. What do you say that also you helped get 5CP banned in America compared to something like Europe where it was oh, played yeah, no, for I much longer? Oh, yeah, I absolutely did. Oh, no. Based. Um, Based. Season 15 was um, was UGC North America Squirtle Squad in Gold Division. Um, that Gold Division was the fiercest uh, season I had ever played. And it was an interesting dynamic because... That was the season that UGC, um, I, I would say against better judgment, uh, listening to Platt Council, they'd forced round robin. And this was still at a time where there were a lot of very, very capable contending teams. Um, so round robin artificially limited Platinum's uh, division to nine teams. 
which meant that I would say, to be completely honest, there were 17 or 18 teams that qualified to be platinum. And by artificially limiting it to nine teams, you put nine very capable platinum teams in gold. And as a result, it kind of had this kind of negative cascading effect where the gold teams that didn't want to get sandbagged, they moved to silver. The silver teams that didn't want to get sandbagged, they moved to steel. And honestly, I would say that's a, it's not a turning point, but it was certainly a, a focal point in, I would say, some of the decline of um, growth in the league. Um, but getting back to it is season 15 was fiercely competitive. It had a lot of eyes on it. There were, I think there were almost as many, if not more people that actually watched gold division that season than platinum because, um, Squirtle squad, which the team was, uh, I was on as engineer, we went against, uh, John Madden and the, the fights were fierce. Every play was action packed. Numbers were insane. People were just like, you know, all of the name, like all the names is like to put it, put it in perspective. Uh, Sneaky Polar Bear was our demo man for the season. Okay. Uh, people know him today as Jake, the Houston Outlaws uh, Overwatch League player. Overwatch. Overwatch. Yes. Also, I'm he- playing your uh, thing in the background. The uh, the finals. Yeah. Wow. That is some interesting gun placement. Sorry. Continue. Yes, yes, yes. So the gun placement is kind of where some of the controversy goes in. So as I mentioned before, there was a lot of notorious um, discontent for a lot of my play styles. And when you stack it up where the entire league is watching, you go against this top contending team where these people, everything is down to a science. It's like it's like everyone knows their mechanics. Mechanics, mechanics are top notch. There are there's there's not a lot of room for error because you mess up you like you lose because they won't miss their shots they you know you expose a sight line you're dead the snipers got you so like there wasn't margin of error and these games were fierce and they were fast it's like when we did our king of the hill rounds is like it was so intense a moment's notice an entire you know round is played out um because of just the crazy back and forth and uh what ended up being very controversial is we ended up playing a best of three at the end of the season. And the best of three, Squirtle Squad, was the lower bracket, which meant that we had to win two best of threes. Oh, I feel that. Had to do that yes. before. Yes. So it was uh, not the most well communicated, but there was a little confusion on how the maps were to be played. And uh, I believe it was like some sort of pick band style of how the maps ended up getting decided. And... Um, we ended up, I believe, picking process because we had this back pocket strategy of mine. And the enemy team, they knew that their DM was marginally better than ours, which, not, which isn't to say that like both teams weren't crazy high DPM contenders. Um, but we chose those maps, and the best of three was, I believe, those two maps. And then there was a third map. I can't remember what the third map was that would also get played. But we ended up, I think, like... Um, I think we ended up one, two, we ended up two, oneing the first best of three and then two, owing the second best of three. Uh, but process was played in both best of threes. And during the second one, um, the first one, we tried to go for setup, but the game was a little bit too fast paced. But in the second one, um, by interesting decision, um, our demo who sneaky polar bear, who was generally against my strategies, he'd had general disdain for what my strategy was, during the second best of three, he made an explicit ask of me 
to run level threes uh, during the game. And this is a very funny story, and I, I think I talk about this in my video. The time that he asked for it, I had a very, very tight strategy, and I had a mechanism for when I ran level threes on the map. Because 5 CP, metal's scarce, and when you're trying to do like crazy sentry jumps and things like this and that, especially in such a high-fidelity environment, you have to count your seconds, you have to count your metal, you gotta make sure your setup is right. He asked for me, so I would, how I normally do it is I would normally be late on rollouts, and I would usually put a dispenser early, and I would upgrade a gun to two, and I come back and upgrade to three, and then usually I would lag behind my team, and I would have level threes behind them to deal with flankers, but also to secure a position once it was taken. So like, if my team capped mid, I would put a sentry gun somewhere on mid. And then similarly, I would take that same sentry gun and it would come to fourth point and I would put it on the perch on fourth on process. And that, and that spot on, the, on your team's fourth, that spot was notoriously evil because it saw every entrance and exit the enemy team had. Sewer, uh, lobby, shutter on the far side. It was unsappable in the location that it was at. Um, I think it also saw rollout. Um, but what was interesting is I was not running level threes when my demo asked me to run them. Uh, we had just captured fourth and I had just respawned. And um, I ended up building this gun. I barely got the metal. And by the time I got the resources available, we lost fourth. And funny story. I didn't have a mid strategy for level threes, especially when we were losing ground. It was usually just kind of a holdover. I'm going to carry this gun forward from second when we capture mid. And it's just kind of an interim gun until I can get it in my four spot. So when he asked that of me, I, I did it. And then we lost fourth and I panicked. I didn't know where to put this gun. Because I, in my opinion, there were no good spots on mid. You know, the only spot that was kind of a perch was you could put it on top of the either the, the girder rail above mid or on either of the houses. But that doesn't really, I mean, it's, it's the sight lines on it. It can get sight line very easily from both uh, computer room and from choke. And from sewer, they can kind of peek it and shoot out too. Um, but anybody can get up there. A spy can just surf the rock and get up there. And so, like, I don't have spy immunity. I don't have great sight lines. I didn't know what to do with this fucking thing. Um, and I panicked. And in that time, during the UGC Grand Final Season 15, I had an idea. As I carried the gun back out of the shutter, I noticed there was an awning above the shutter. And I had no idea if it was buildable. I had no idea if it was even solid. I didn't know if it had collision physics. But I panicked. I Wrangler jumped up there, dropped the gun, and the next thing I knew, their flank had come out of sewer and they had no idea there was going to be a gun there. Because nobody had ever seen that spot before. Nobody. At all. Not even myself. So I didn't know how I was going to play. But in the same vein, is to kind of go back to that psychology, people weren't conditioned to look out for it. People didn't know how to counterplay it. So their flank comes out of sewer. Soldier and scout die instantly. <laughs> and then the rest of the team, like they're trying to communicate this gun to their team, to my understanding, and they didn't understand what they were communicating. So then the rest of the team, they're just like, well, well, whatever. Like the gun's not in a critical spot. We don't see it. So the enemy team charges in with an Uber. And our team, we counter Uber and we hold our ground. And then the enemy team, they, they couldn't quite figure out what the gun was, but the gun was firing at them. And then a really big slip up happened. Their medic, who was leaving through choke, 
there was apparently, I didn't know this, there was apparently a tiny line of sight gap between the rocket choke and the choke itself that the gun, if positioned appropriately on the sewer, Ani, dropped the medic post-Uber. So they lost all of their heals, and we still had our team. They had no flank, and they had no medic. And our demo just went to town with that. He was just like, was like time to go. So we pushed in, and then we took fourth with ease, and by that time they had respawned, and the demo asked me to um, move the gun back to fourth, so I put it up on the ledge spot, and we just stonewalled. And it became this park the bus situation where we, I think we were 2-1 with like 10 minutes left. And it was just, it, it became this panic situation um, because the enemy team, they could not get it down. It was not sappable. My pyro, I believe, was hanging back with me. I was, what I was doing is I had the rescue ranger. So what I would do is I would just stand lower second point where there was no sight lines that readily had me exposed and the, spy, uh, the pyro was watching for spies. And all I had to do was just keep alongside of my gun with the rescue ranger bolts. And basically that gun was unsappable and un, like it was, you couldn't get it down. Um, and there was a lot of controversy at this because this was being broadcast and there's like you know a couple thousand viewers, I believe. Wow, and that's a lot. Yeah, it was it was a crazy amount, and people were just livid. They were just like, I, in fact, one of the things I wanted to put as a description tag on my my medal after I won the season, someone literally put in the chat, "Don't let Game Master get a first place medal," because they were like, <laughs> they they hated it. They just like there's just this, this you know community of people that are just like all mad about it and they hated what I was doing to the game. But uh, the casters too, like the casters, like if you go back and you watch the the actual live stream, the casters like uh, they're taken aback. They're like, it's intense. They're high energy. They're talking about the plays. The soldiers going in. They're bombing the medic. They forced Uber, and then their demeanor just changes. They're like, the engineers, he's running level threes. He's like, what? <laughs> what? And then they're just like, there's a the level three sentry on top of awning, and it dropped it dropped the medic and then they're just like level threes like they just like they didn't know they didn't know how to respond and it it was such a focal point is like it was a, it was a known unpopular strategy but basically what ended up happening is uh the gun like on fourth it just held there and it was just this gridlock like two three minutes of like almost no activity um and like the casters didn't know what to do with it they're just like this is supposed to be a fast-paced game and like this team's just got they have parked the bus and eventually the enemy team in an understandable panic they didn't know they they didn't know how to break it down because they had not played against it there was no psychological conditioning meta play up to that point did not know how to respond to that in my opinion it would have been put everything you can to get the engineer down like focus the engineer because that gun's not going down but you know they they panicked they didn't want to make a bad move because you lost a player well our team's just going to come in and take that point so half another round that sounds like a really incredible legacy to have, and that's just like I kind of like read it from a quality article, but it's like incredible to just be talking to the person in question. Uh, so, why do you think that just is a remember that much today? Like, why do you think the legacy of all these amazing, amazing engineering things just aren't remembered that much? I think it's because I, because my strategies weren't as you know in line with what was popular in the meta. It's like, you know, I, I would say, like, you know, engineers like Sigafu were more fondly remembered for things like, I know he has the the coin Sigafu save, which was a similar strategy of just, uh, pop, it's, um, I think it's, uh, I think the video was from, like, Barn Blitz last, where he yeah. just has the gun at the end, and he just pops the Wrangler, uh, and then he rescue rangers it, and he wrenches it a few times, and he tanks this heavy Uber at, like, point-blank range, which is, like, yeah, you have to have some, you know, 
plate and understanding and skill to understand the, the mechanics of keeping that thing up under such dire circumstances, but it was something you could do. But there were still plenty of gaps and vulnerabilities in it. Like that was a, it was a ground gun. It could have been sat. There's plenty of other opportunities. Um, but Sigafu was also known to be a pretty heavy DM engineer. And um, I think that people just more positively regarded Sigafu. And because of perhaps some of my, my controversies, because remember, like, I'm, as you said, like, I'm kind of known for getting 5CB taken out of rotation. People like, there's <laughs> hey, a lot of. That's a legacy a right of, there. Right, right. It's 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 more of a it's more infamy than than, than fame. Um, but my strategies were not as commonly practiced, um, and they were controversial and they were considered unfun to a lot of people. But again, it's like competitive is about playing the game to its fullest and winning. It's like competitive can be fun, but sometimes it's 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 gonna be hard. It's gonna be work. Um, so I think that it wasn't as well regarded just because a lot of people didn't like it. Hmm. Um, okay. And because it's it's not fun to play against in certain situations, but I mean, to me, like I think that's fun because like it's a new problem to solve. Right. And well, it's so like people don't want to engage. When you have, just ban it, when you just like completely stagnate the meta as well, or just like play way more traditionally, it's also a lot less fun on the same token. It's like you just yeah. Don't and that's, that's also I think a perspective that I, I I very strongly stand behind too. It's like just doing the same thing methodically is no fun. Like there's not a dynamic you're trying to right. improve upon. Like. Highlander sounded so much more dynamic back then. What changed? Like, why is that sort of psychological aspect not seen that much anymore? I think, uh, for one, is like there's just not as many teams anymore. As like we kind of said, is like you know people have had their heyday with TF2. Is a lot. I probably just as many retired players, if not more, than people have participated in the uh, participating today. Um, there's also a lot more establishment. It's like I said, back in season six, like Engineer himself didn't have. A community behind him exploring right. the class there was there was so much untapped potential in the game and nowadays is like we see a lot more of it and i think the other dynamic is too is that the game has undergone a fair amount of balance changes for one to i think reinforce certain dynamics like for example engineer was not tuned in my opinion to be an expedient class engineer was basically like people think of heavy as kind of a pseudo tank engineer was the tank of the old days the guns at the capacity that they could take damage and mitigate damage and have the Wrangler and the Rescue Ranger and this toolkit and all these things. Engineer was the Stonewall class. But today they have mitigated that and they've moved Engineer into being a more fast-acting dynamic, even amongst his own class, things like level threes, um, by the things that they've changed. You know, um, Engineer moves faster when he walks with buildings. Uh, the Rescue Ranger takes less metal to Rescue Range something. Um... The Jag is actually an objectively, well, I wouldn't say objectively anymore, but at one point when they when they first buffed it before they had the Sapper penalty, it was objectively a better wrench. Right. So like um, the right. game, the game becoming more dynamic, like the class, like uh, the class becoming more dynamic, kind of made it a lot less dynamic as a result, in a sense. I would say that honestly, Engineer became <sighs> probably slightly less dynamic because they've they've curated speed into Engineer. And that is what is the most supported strategy. It's like mini sentries are speed with no time or someone that's a roamer. Whereas like if you want to be like an expedient engineer that sets up today, it's like, well, you can move faster carrying buildings. Metal can be a little bit more abundant right. in certain situations. Um, and like guns are more disposable. Like I would I consider like a level three in my time is like you I, I would expect my team to die for my gun to stay up because that thing is that is the be all to end all. But I, I think of like how engineering be played today. It's like, you know, you put a gun up, even if it's in a, a cheeky spot, the gun's disposable. Your team it's not worth your team dying over anymore. It's a mitigation to the enemy team. But back in the times before those types of changes like gun metal and, and so forward, um, 
that gun was the lifeblood and the backbone of uh, a stopping point, of a, a place of defense. Right. And I guess, like, 5 CP not being in rotation kind of caused those as well. Like, would you say in a way, like, even though it could be still made, it just really, like, hurt the meta development of the game or, like, the possibility for dynamicism? I think so. And I think that that touches on a broader point of, like, kind of some of the mentalities I still dislike that I see in the competitive communities today is that if, you know, again, playing a game to me is exploring all the mechanics to their fullest and capitalizing on someone that is a truly competitive player in my mind they can look at any game mode they can look at any class and they can be on their feet and they can develop strategy and they can iterate and they can counterplay it and you know back when i played um when i first started in season six we had ctf maps we had ctf five cp attack defense you saw lots of things like gorge and um gravel pit and you would see, in fact, they even sometimes would introduce, like, every now and again, they'd introduce, like, a custom map for each season. Uh, PL Waste, which is kind of like a tug-of-war map. Um, you saw all of these game modes played, and you saw the teams of the day. They, I mean, yeah, people, everyone has a game mode they don't like, but everyone played to their fullest. They developed strategies, they could develop counter-strategies, and people adapted. And, you know, I, I remember being a part of that myself, as, like, how I would approach playing an engineer on CTF is fundamentally different than how I would on like attack defense on a map like Gorge or uh, how I would on 5CP. And I'm, I'm disappointed to see that we now ex are in an era where this game has introduced more maps and there's more opportunities and there's more things for the competitive community to explore to capitalize on their their you know dynamics of exploring and bettering the competitive aspect of being on their feet and understanding and trying to develop strategy on the fly on the fly to reducing the game to this tiny pool of maps only the things they consider to be acceptable rather than the game itself being um available to them right. it's like they have this whole game to them and they're playing what not even 10 percent do you want me to run down the map pools in monday for an a yeah, that could be okay. could be fun. So here's what you got. You got Koth product, Koth mm -hmm. Astral, Koth Lakeside, CP Steel, <sighs> PL Upward, Vigil, Swiftwater, and there's a refresh project. Sometimes they make minor changes. People flip out even over that. <laughs> like yeah, minor gameplay changes. And that's fair. But apparently that's been that's been exactly what the map pool has been for like I don't even want to think about how long it's been that way for an NA, at least since, like, I want to say Season 4 or something. And ah. all the changes is Cascade and Lakeside, like, two King of the Hill maps, rotating in and out every season. With Sounds so lifeless to me. It's like, yeah. when I played, you never had a same map season over season. Every map changed. <laughs> yeah, this map, and it's the same. Yeah. Seasons, rather. That sounds, that sounds miserable. Like there's so much of this game, and there's so many opportunities and great things to play, and we limited ourselves because we have disdain for play styles, or we don't want to be adaptive. We want to do the things we're comfortable with. Like, it's like we want the same, we want the same experiences, right? Like we don't want to actually have to do something different, right? And you know, um, it's it it. By the way, it amuses me that CP Steel was the one map that retain that remained as attack defense. As back in the day, Steel was the most notoriously hated map because of how <laughs> difficult it was, and yet it was the one that survived. Um, but no, back in my days, like um, you saw like maps like CP Fastlane, uh, Freight was played. Um, you would see 
uh, CTF, uh, Turbine, Turbine Pro in a later era, Double Cross. Uh, we had a couple custom maps, like I said, PL Waste, which was a tug of war, CP Haunt, I'm sorry, CTF Haunt, which was like a dynamic modification to CTF, where I think it was if one team had the intel, the other intel was locked out, and you had to actually get the intel reset in order to cap. Uh, but like teams played these maps, and they didn't complain. They they explored them. They distilled strategies and dynamics. And I can't imagine, you know, even towards the later end of UGC, we had eliminated CTF, and it was still five CP uh, attack defense had kind of gone by the wayside. So it was really five CP, which was notoriously hated. Um, King of the Hill and Payload. And Payload had basically devolved into, I think, by that point, just basically Badwater and Upward. And you had, you know, Product was has always been a popular one. Lakeside yep. was the other one. Uh, Ram Jam would come in occasionally for King of the Hill. Um, and then towards the end is uh, 5CP had been devolved down to one map a season. They were rotating between Process and Gully Wash. And I remember after season 15, I think it became only Gully Wash, and then eventually they just said no. So they just... why do you think competitive became so much less diverse over time rather than growing and expanding? Uh, you mentioned something about the Platte Council earlier, right? Yeah, so I think there's several dynamics that lead into this. Um, I would say the first is I think that the the shortcomings of a community focusing and emphasizing on only a subset of play is not something that's dynamic or that's unique to tf2 competitive community i think all communities suffer from this you can see it with things like smash brothers or you know card games like magic gathering right. or Yu-Gi-Oh. is people get fixated on a particular subset of things usually it's what someone popular does maybe they do have a good strategy for the time uh, maybe they're just a player that is, you know, um, they're famous for their their personality and perhaps not for their playstyle. Um, and then also the other focus of I think competitive tends to naively gravitate always exclusively towards speed and damage, and they don't think about the other types. I don't think that the 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 more fringe dynamics of what can make for powerful competitive play always get considered. Like take Overwatch for example is like if I had to name like the top common heroes for Overwatch, it's probably like yeah, McCree, uh, Soldier 76, a little bit less to an extent, but like your barrier tanks, your Reinhardt, your Zarya. It's like it's down to like, you know, I would say speed, resilience, and um, CC and types of mitigation. Um, but like you don't hear about, when's the last time you heard about like a Symmetra or a uh, Sombra player right, in Overwatch? Right. And what's funny is I, I have some really good friends I've made over the years that play Overwatch. And like I have one friend who like he only plays those types of heroes is like, He's not. He, if you tell him to play McCree, like maybe he plays McCree at like a mid plat level. But his whole thing is he loves to go into games, and he has like he loves to play Symmetra, and he has these crazy dynamics, and like he's nearly made it. Like he was like one or two places away from top five hundred back when Overwatch was still a lot more lively. And I share that sentiment, and I think the ways the reason he was so effective is because he, like he understood the class and he understood the psychology, and he was tripping up people that just they couldn't grasp it. So I think that at a high level, the the lack of growth and expansion and exploration, I think as a community is very early on, they focused on that. And there's, you know, as the community gets more popular, and there are more participants, it grows, people explore a broader spectrum of things. I think during the era I played around season six and season seven, we saw a lot of that. And then as the community is, you know, matures, and it 
you know, people start to lose interest and strategies have been developed and lots of things been explored, it begins to consolidate again. The people that are focused more on the traditional, I would say, behaviors are the ones mm-hmm. that persist longest in the game. Um, or it's the one, it's the mentality that comes back out from people that are, are, are newer and they aren't willing to explore as much. Um, so, similarly, I would say for UTC, um, Plat Council also did have a negative influence, um, which is to say that Plat Council, I think there was, you know, there's always politics in anything. Um, Plat Council, some of the more, I would say, unfriendly teams that didn't want to foster growth and they wanted to be more about exclusion and i'd say superiority they wanted to enact round robin in plat council um mostly so they could just have less teams you know they you know it makes their metal rarer if there's less teams that have it um wow. and they get the gatekeep and you know it was in, in my perspective and i i remember being a part of those conversations like i was very much against it because I knew like it was going to have the same exact effect that it did, which was you're going to push out qualified teams out of the division, and they're going to feel like they're sandbagging the division below. And right. it had this cascading effect, and I think that that drove people away. Question. And you go for it. Uh, I, so you could go back to that a little bit, but did that end up kind of isolating yourself from that community? Like, did they kind of push you out? Like, is that maybe, is that one of the reasons why you eventually stopped playing? Like, uh. Yes and no. Uh, so it's funny. The dynamic that I had was shared by a very small minority of teams in the in the area. I'd say uh, about half of Plat Council. The 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 louder half of Plat Council disliked it, and they got their way by kind of throwing, I would say, in a sense, glorified tantrums. Uh, the people that were a little more passive. I think shared my sentiment, but they weren't. They were a little intimidated to speak up. But um, it actually ended up that the the UDC admins very much also supported the the growth mindset I had for the community and the and the integrity mindset. Um, so it actually ended up leading me into becoming a UDC admin for a couple of seasons. Oh, wow. So yeah, so I was actually a UDC admin for a number of seasons, um, and I think it helped me. In- prolong my time in UTC. I think without the the admins and the teams that were more supportive of my type of growth mentality for the community, mm-hmm. it kept me around there a little longer, but it did it did still I still had to kind of watch the decline for the side. Right. Like so it was a it was a losing battle, right? It was a losing battle, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. So I mean I stood on my laurels of what I believed in, but it unfortunately I think that the administration, the you know, the the top level administration above even where I was, um, they didn't understand it or see it in the same way, and they kind of let some of this um, bad decision making be reinforced by who was loudest, and I think mm-hmm. that that led to a lot of decline in the league. And okay. I think that, and I think it was kind of a perfect storm because the decline of the league. That was kind of a focal point of where it wasn't fostering growth anymore and it was making people feel uneasy. And then following that, two things that were pretty substantial happened. The first one, Overwatch came out and people thought Overwatch was going to be that TF2 killer. I think people were frustrated with Valve also neglecting TF2 at that point. So Overwatch was a great one to take a lot of steam out, which from my perspective, UTC did end up doing an Overwatch League for a number of seasons. 
And I think, because my perspective today is I think that people were stargazed with Overwatch and then they realized it really wasn't the TF2 killer and they wanted to come back to the league. Um, and I think UGC would have been the place everyone returned to, but a couple of other things happened that also, I think, um, dampened UGC's um, kind of namesake. Yeah, like what were some it, of the issues with them back then and going on? Yeah, so a big one that started to see a mass exodus of very, very top-level teams was in Season 17, Valve enacted a very, very massive bandwave for people that were using cheats in the game. They had been, you know, logging these players for who were using these types of cheats for a very long time, and they banned them. And of the players that were banned that season, it was just a few days after the end of the season, the number one sniper in silver, the number one sniper in gold, and the number one sniper in platinum. Oh my god, I'm back banned. I heard this in like just a previous interview not too long ago. <laughs> right. And it really, really just took a lot of faith out of the players that they were there to play to be the best and to play the game to its fullest. And they wanted to lose, win or lose, you know, sportsmanship. But to, to these top teams, to whether they knew, whether knowingly they had a cheater or not, it was still just something that nobody wanted to continue to participate in right and and go ahead i was gonna say was this a lot of the people who do genuinely care who like had the growth mentality is that kind of what resulted in a shifting tide i would say so i think a lot of the people that had the growth mentality are the people that were you know like i could think of like the top teams in platinum that basically like left after that a lot of them were the teams i would consider the healthier teams that wanted to foster growth that wanted to mentor lower division teams they you know to them that was the end of it and I think, too, is it also reinforced, like, there was a particularly troublesome member in the league, uh, in council, that was known to be rather, if you blunt, rather toxic uh, and arrogant. And, you know, he was always good at making, I guess, so much of a ruckus, like, he would kind of, you know, uh, divert attention from other things. And nobody ever really noticed, like, I, I, I always had contention with this player. But I noticed that, you know, going through the team history, he started, you know, steel and all that like everyone else. But he very quickly made his way to the top and his team recruited top talent because the team was, you know, of course, everyone wants to play for the top platinum team or for one of the top three platinum teams. But all of his snipers all the way the way up his whole team history, every one of them had a VAC ban. I mean, if you ask me, my perspective is he used cheaters to validate his team, to move himself up through the ranks, to get his prestige, it was ill-gotten gains. And to me, that just you know left a bad taste in my mouth. And um, it to me, I think it was shameful. And I think for anyone else that also was aware of that, for them too, was, they didn't want to be around it anymore. It's like right. even if like uh, no, the problem was is I mean UGC didn't ban they didn't ban any of the teams. They banned the snipers, and then I think they took away the they gave all of those teams participation medals rather than their first place medals for that season. But the teams were still around, and like you know whether the teams willing whether the teams knew nobody really knows. But I got to be honest is the 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 person to who I'm referring to you don't have seven different teams all with cheating snipers all the way through up through the leagues and it'd be coincidental no other team had that same problem hmm. i i can't believe that it wasn't something that was knowingly done yeah it definitely seems to be consistent just sort of that negligence on ugc's part at least like at the top administration level 
Well, that same player actually had been temporarily banned a number of times for things that he had done. And he had raised such a, a fuss and he would throw such, you know, I would say disproportionate tantrums. He would get the, uh, the founders engaged and they would tell the head admin, Kamari, hey, unban this guy. You know, we, need, we want activity in our league. Like, he's a member. You can't just ban him. And against better judgment, you know, Kamari always had to listen to what they asked for. It was their league, but it was the wrong answer. And who were the owners? Uh, Fornot and Snowblind Frog. And by the time I had become a UGC admin, it was rare to interact with them. They they would come around occasionally. Um, you know, they would handle the they had like an, uh, these like uh, admin panels and things like that for helping manage the league. Um, they would come around for certain things. Is like actually, believe it or not, when Overwatch was just launching, uh, UGC still with its notoriety at the time, Fortnite and Snowblind actually spoke with the developers at Blizzard, um, and they had some FaceTime with them. So every now and again, they come around, and you know, they they had the opportunity to have their reach and they made it known when you know they they wanted to and you know unfortunately for players like this one i'm referring to when that person got their attention perhaps out of just not being engaged with the community they you know they bended to the will of this person and you know something he ended up eventually doing i think was of all the blows that the league had from plat council to the season 17 back band wave to overwatch coming out um <clears throat> UGC eventually made Kotaku News for a rather um, concerning, inappropriate event that was fostered by this particular player. And I think that is what was the final nail in the coffin that caused the max exodus. And at that time, it was right when RGL was coming around. And it was a prime opportunity for RGL to uh, root itself as becoming the kind of replacement league for UGC, which had just in addition to everything else, had let this particularly terrible thing happen. And, and to me, I would kind of mark that as, the, as you know, the putting the League on life support following. But then the damage was kind of, like, already done, right? Like the da- Right, the damage was basically already so, done. And, yep. Would you be surprised to hear that UGC still has the same issues, specifically with their Asian region, at the least? Those sorts of issues? That doesn't necessarily surprise me, no. Nah, yeah. Suppose not. You'll be seeing a bit on that in like a week or two. But um, what can we as a community do about those sorts of things? So like going forward, like how can we kind of recover from all of that? And do you think like the invite council, plat councils, whatever, the top of the game still kind of results in some of these issues? So I'm not been engaged with UGC as much, nor have I RGL by the time kind of the decline of UGC occurred in the um, uprising of RGL. I had already kind of stopped playing the game as much. I think that um, it was like, you know, Valve had changed a bunch of fundamentals to the game. It was obvious that Valve um, had also was still kind of neglecting the game. Um, I, a lot of the people that I played in the league starting out, a lot of those people had retired. So I wasn't seeing the same faces that I had used to. It just didn't feel like the same game. And it also felt like I had accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. I was able to you know, win my divisions, doing the things that I had done. I felt like I had um, given the opportunity to inspire others doing what I do. There was a culture there that even if I was no longer participating, I felt like there were people that were still able to continue that that dynamic and that and that engagement. So um, I don't know 
the the details of the politics today, but I think at a high level, it is to say that um, if UGC could do it over again, and hopefully how the the leagues manage today is to not let to not let a player's notoriety or mechanics or anything that makes them a top contender to it doesn't give them a free pass to behave um, in such you know disrespectful ways. It's right. I think a big part of competitive is you know you can have the best mechanical player in the world, but if their attitude is absolutely garbage or toxic, um, they're not worth being on anyone's team. They aren't, and they're not worth being a part of that league, especially a representative of the league. So I think that expecting a, a real level of respect um, out of our our other players and speaking up when they're out of line to the administrations, and the administrations acting on that is, you know, even if that's a top player that gets attention to the league, if they're constantly someone who acts out and does certain things, is like, that player could be a good marketing draw, but at the same time, they could also be the death of the league, as we right. saw with UTC. Um, well, RGL is the main league now, yeah, for each, for a North American HL still. Right, that's, that's last I understood, is that they were still the, the primary right. league. Uh, do you think we can ever like kind of go back and restore that sense of community, like, and just the state of how things once were, or do you think the only thing we can do is just try and do the best with what we have, and that we might not ever see, like, a dynamic life full, life full game as we had in the past again. So I think another aspect of it is back when I played is that the game still saw regular updates from Valve and there was no end in sight. It was still this early era of like you never it wasn't super common to see game companies give the amount of love and life that TF2 had. It's like to all of us is like TF2 is going to get updates for forever every couple years we're going to get a major update there's something to be excited about the game is evolving lots of people are playing um and I think that, uh, you know, Overwatch and Valve neglected the games. Like, when's the last time we got a content update? I, I don't even know. What, six years? Uh, 2017. Five years? Yeah. yeah. Besides that, it's just been, like, occasional maps uh, being right. added and hats and minor fixes. And we have a bot epidemic. Right. And, like, we have a bot epidemic. It's like, Valve has so much money that they could print, you know, like, just they pr they're printing money. They could they could contract and outsource the entire team to clean this game up. People are literally reverse engineering this right. thing all the time and doing it, and they just don't. So and I think sorry. Go ahead. I was gonna say. So I'm not sure if you're aware, but there was like a pretty big YouTuber, like a like a TF2 content creator thing, where it's like they're all messaging Valve. And do you think maybe like a joint front, like a lot of the former competitive players, like pitching in as well, a lot of the current competitive players, the leagues, the admins. Do you think all of them coming together, just like messaging valve through all of those means like maybe that could change things just like the casual competitive community coming together even if valve doesn't step in step in like maybe that could help restore a sense i think that at this point that there's too little too late for the game to be salvaged by the community alone i think that there has to be someone that is at valve that can push out official updates and do official sponsorship like you know to get a second life to tf2 would require oh. something like how Blizzard has run an Overwatch League. Valve needs to give the same level of care. Well, from. that's definitely fair, but like, how do you feel about just like casual, the, the casual competitive communities just kind of working together, kind of collaborating more, and just trying to raise mutual interest again if Valve isn't going to do it? Like, do you think that could be a potential solution as well, at least in some shape or form? I think the problem is, no matter how much 
the either community collectively raises awareness, Valve has to engage. Oh no, I'm not talking about awareness, like of the issues. I'm just talking about like working out these things amongst themselves, just raising mutual interest between each other and sort of like establishing a he- more healthy like sort of partnership and making both more accessible. Kind of. So I think that my 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 cynicism says is like no amount of engagement amongst the community can solve things like the bot issues that we see. It's like right. these, these crazy hacks. Is like Valve has to address that by the actual game distributable itself. Um, you know, Valve also has the money and the sponsorship and the means to host these like you know crazy events like they right. wanted to. Like the well, prize pools they do for Dota, they aren't, and that is a level of engagement. That's marketing for the game. Is like. This, uh, in a sense, is like even if we had a crazy amount of engagement between competitive